Well, turn back in your Bibles, please, if you close them. I suspect you did. To 2 Kings chapter 5, and we'll look at verses 1 through 15, with a sermon entitled, A Course in Conversion, or a tutoring, if you will, a lesson in the nature and character of conversion from this passage, this text in the Old Testament. Now, we didn't read the chapter in its entirety. It's a bit too long. But the account or the story is taken up with two men. The first is Naaman, who is a Syrian, uh, and who struggles but eventually comes to faith. And the other is Gehazi, who is the servant of Elisha's and has performed well. And yet, by the end of the chapter, ends poorly. What's the unity between or what do these two passages have in common or these two events have in common? Well, one is an Israelite, Gehazi, and the other is a Syrian, so they don't have that in common. But what they have in common is that for the Syrian, leprosy is cleansed or cured, and with Gehazi, leprosy is imposed. The very opposite of what you might expect given that Syrians were outside the covenant and of course Israelites were members of the covenant and God had made it made promises to Israel and so you would expect further blessing upon the one and cursing upon the other but it's the very reverse of what you expect the healing of leprosy and the conversion of Naaman contrasted with the destruction of Gehazi. There's one other thing that makes this passage somewhat unique, and that is its length. It's a very long story. Whereas more recently, the particular events that we've looked at have been um, just a few verses long, two, four, maybe a few more than that, but very short. Chapter four contains a, a number of events or elements, and now this only two. Well, what are we to make of all of this? We're getting, in many ways, a bit ahead of ourselves. What we discover is an evidence of and a telling of a particular person and his conversion, his coming to faith. The very opposite of what you would expect, especially from an Old Testament text. 
Naaman experiences God's grace, the most unlikely recipient. And as Dale Ralph Davis notes, that here is a passage that contains various theological keynotes. And we want to notice those in the time that we have before us this afternoon. First of all, in the first three verses, notice with me Nathan's state. Now, the particular time frame in which this takes place in all probability, though it's not mentioned specifically here, but if there's anything like a, a chronological connectedness, and I think that there is, Ben-Hadad is the king of Syria, and Jehoram is the king of Israel. So that gives you sort of some pegs upon which to hang this, and Jehoshaphat, of course, would be the king uh, of Judah, but he's not mentioned, he's not a part of this particular context. Well, what can we say about Naaman's state? Well, several things. First of all, as I've already said, he was a Syrian. He was not an Israelite. He was an outsider, one you would not normally expect to have faith in the biblical God. And again, he's not a member of the covenant at all in any way. It doesn't mean that there weren't proselytes at this time, but he certainly wasn't one of them. Secondly, he was a soldier. In fact, he was an officer. He possessed high rank. He was someone of importance and of significance. And he was marked by success. And there's a particular note of success mentioned here. But before his master, before the king, he had proven himself serviceable and was success. Now, because of the language that's used here, there's also, I think, a reference to his standing or his reputation. The text says that he was known for his valor. He was known for his courage. He, he was marked by distinction. So not only in the court, but perhaps beyond. He may well have been a very popular figure. Much like certain war heroes at different periods of time. Serving well, serving masterfully, winning the battle as it were, but also would have the love and the respect of his men and even beyond perhaps their families and the larger community. It would appear as if he possessed something of that. He was a man of some substance and uh, we later read of this enormous amount of money which he took with him, which either the king gave him or he actually possessed because he was a rich man. It merely says that he took with him when he left the king. He then left the king to go to see Elisha and he took with him. 
And so there's not a whole lot there. But remember that he also owned a slave girl. And only one is mentioned, so he may have had uh, other slaves. But he was well off enough to have this young girl who was an Israelite, who was taken captive by the Syrians in this battle that is alluded to here. And he brought her back for his wife, and this slave girl attended her. It would suggest that here was a man of of some means, of some substance. But sixthly, he was also a servant. He was a servant of the Lord. Notice that uh, he, we, we read here that he um, was uh, successful uh, in this particular uh, battle. And um, it, we're told here that, um, uh, that he uh, was a mighty man of valor. He was a leper and so forth, uh, but he had... Uh, served indirectly, had, had served the will of the Lord. He had served the Lord unknowingly, but it was the Lord's will for, um, for the Syrians uh, to win. The sovereignty of God is on display even in what takes place between Syria and Israel. The big events as well as the small events are in the hand of the Lord. Or as Matthew Henry writes, let Israel know that when the Syrians prevailed, it was from the Lord. And that language is uh, pretty much the language of the text here itself. Even against Israel, even against the covenant nation, even against the people of God, Syria was successful. This man had a hand and a part in all of that. And in that sense, he served the Lord indirectly. But seventhly, he was also marked by sickness. The passage tells us that he was a leper. And this may have meant, this word leprosy or leper in the Old Testament tends to refer to a a cluster of skin diseases. Uh, It may have been leprosy as we think of leprosy. It may have been some other uh, disease. Um, In verse 27, it it says that uh, he was as, as white as snow and leprosy doesn't usually mark itself that way. Anyway, it doesn't make any difference. It was a skin disease of some kind and certainly may well have been malignant or even infectious. In fact, it was believed to be infectious in the day. And it's interesting to observe here that Israel and Syria seem to have Uh, different perspectives on leprosy. Um, For Israel, it meant exclusion. We have that even in the day of Jesus. And uh, lepers were to cry out 
unclean, unclean as they made their way from place to place. They had no place to go. They lost family and friends and all that. They were excluded. Leviticus chapters 13 and 14 um, record and reflect that. But in Syria, it didn't seem as if one was necessarily excluded from associating with other people. Here is a man who uh, has access to the king. He's uh, a commander uh, within the army. Um, He's still at home with his wife, apparently, and not excluded from the home, and has this slave girl. But eighthly and eighthly and finally, as we look at his state, here is a man who elicited sympathy. First of all, from this young maiden who says to her mistress, to this commander, this, uh, this officer's wife, I know somebody who can be of some help. And it, of course, is Elisha, the prophet that is in Samaria. If we contact him, he can recover from his leprosy. And so someone reported this to the king, and the king called Naaman before him and told him to go seek help. It's interesting to observe that with all of this man's advantages, and think of them, he's of some significance, he's wealthy, it would appear, he has an influence, he's popular, even has the ear of the king, and yet it doesn't keep him from calamity. No man's honor and happiness can place him beyond the horror of some form or multiple forms even of calamity and difficulty. And so it doesn't make any difference how rich we become, how popular we are, how influential we are. All of that or none of that keeps us from experiencing difficulty and calamity. Matthew Henry went on to say that the unhappy dispersing of the people of God has sometimes the happy occasion of this diffusion of the knowledge of God. Here is a man who is put upon, who is sent to Elisha or goes to Elisha, but all of that in the goodness and the kindness of God. Is leprosy a gift from God? Be careful you don't just say automatically no. It meant this man's conversion and coming to faith. Matthew Henry also wrote, there is many a sickly, crazy body under rich and gay clothing. 
In other words, the point is nothing can keep us from experiencing difficulty. And so that's his state. That's how we find him. A man with enormous advantages and yet extremely sick. Now, secondly, notice not only his state, that is what he looks like, but also his particular status. By that I mean how he views the world around him. And he views this world into which he finds himself, despite all of these advantages, with disdain and contempt. Now he does go before the king and he takes a letter from his king to the king of Israel. And it is a letter of introduction so that he might come before the prophet. And so he's a man that is marked by a great deal of power. He has has all of this power, secondarily so, but still power nevertheless, and he goes to the king. And he's not only powerful, but he's prosperous. And I've already mentioned this, of course, but notice he takes this enormous sum of money with him. He's proven himself to be serviceable to the king, but he takes all of this money and the amount of silver that he takes, just focusing on the silver, is five times the amount that Omri spent in 1 Kings chapter 16 to buy the hill upon which he built Samaria, or the city of Samaria, five times. So either directly or indirectly, he's extremely prosperous. He's proud. In his relationship and his dealings with Elisha, we'll come back to that once again, but refusing the counsel of Elisha. The text is also marked by perplexity. Why why did the king of Israel draw the conclusion that he did, misunderstanding the intention of this man? Who am I? Can I bring healing? This guy's just trying to get me in trouble, and there's another battle coming. So he has power, he's prosperous, he's proud. He has the ability to make others around him cower, but he's powerless. All of the advantages of life, as I mentioned earlier, all of the advantages of life could not cure him of this disease. And so despite all of those advantages, he's powerless to fix his problem. Though he tries by going to see the prophet and all of the rest, taking a gift which would have been the customary thing, you paid off prophets, you gave them something, you gave them a gift at least of something, and he's got all of, all of that, but he still has 
leprosy. He cannot stop what ails him. But he's brought to the right person. And that's ultimately the emphasis of the story. He's brought to Elisha, and Elisha is the right man. He's the prophet in Israel. He has the word of the Lord, which is exactly what this man needs. Now, have you begun to think about the gospel already? Doesn't this lead us up to to thinking about the gospel? All of the advantages, and we we live in, in, in the richest nation in the world, say what you will about inflation and everything else, and we have far more than anybody else does. And people expect that their resources, their wealth, their cunning, their education can solve absolutely everything that they face. But it cannot cure the worst possible disease that men and women and boys and girls have, which is the leprosy of sin. So he's ultimately brought to the right person whose goal it was, meaning Elisha, to help him come to know God. And that's what we see before the end of our text. Now again, we've seen all of this prosperity, all of these advantages, everything that he has. Thirdly, I want you to notice with me, Nathan, uh, Nathan, Naaman's shame. His humiliation. Now we might not think of all of this as humiliation, but it would have been seen that way by him in the day. His shame includes the influence of a young girl. The contrast here is between a great man and a young girl. We don't know how young she is, but clearly young enough. Taken captive, taken away from her family, taken away from everything that she knows to be real and true. So here is a man full of himself who takes counsel from a slave Counsel not from the wisdom of an old person, but someone very young. Counsel from an anonymous girl. We don't even know her name. We know this man's name, but we don't know her name. And counsel about someone who is superior to Naaman. She knew about Elisha. And it would appear as if she's a believer and one who trusts Elijah. And she believed he and he alone could cure her or him from leprosy. And all we have to do is to think back to uh, earlier in uh, the Old Testament to the book of Numbers and Miriam, the sister of Moses, being cured from Leprosy because of the prayer of Moses. So here's the girl's 
the influence of this young girl, and that's humiliating, certainly in the culture of the day to begin with. And then secondly, his, uh, his humiliation includes Elisha's distance. He goes to see Elisha with all of the trappings, you know, with, with, with horses and chariots and, and all of those. There's a great entourage that goes, and Elisha doesn't even come out to talk to him. You notice that in the text? He doesn't come out to talk to him. He sends a messenger and he says, uh, tell Naaman to go do this. And it's upsetting to Naaman. And his humiliation then includes not only the embarrassment and humiliation of the, of the prophet not even coming out to see him, but thirdly, the response of Naaman, which was one of rage. He was angry because he would not even go out to, to meet him. Secondly, his response was one of repugnance. He was disgusted at the solution that is offered. I want you to go wash seven times in the River Jordan. And the River Jordan was a low-lying river for the most part. And it's muddy, or was muddy in the day. Not sure about it today, but it was muddy. And he says, what's wrong with the rivers in Syria? They, they're, they're clear. They flow down from the mountain. Why can't I wash where I'm comfortable washing? And so he refuses the counsel of the prophet. because it's not according to his liking. And he rejects it and he goes away until his servants with the better part of wisdom sit him down. And perhaps, perhaps they did so at some risk, given the culture of the day. They have the temerity to speak to Naaman and say, look, if he asked you to do something great, wouldn't you do it? Now that he's asked you to do something simple, what's the problem? The advice was not from the movers and shakers of the day. It was not that advice that changed his mind. It was the advice of his servants. Nobody important. And so here is a man ultimately brought into the kingdom through the ministry of the word coming from these servants. Fourthly, notice Naaman's salvation. Notice the elements of his restoration and some repetition here again, but it's important, I think, to see this. Naaman's salvation was, first of all, through intervention. Somebody did something for him and put him moving in the right direction. The prophet 
or rather as the, the, the king of Israel is approached. The intervention of someone, the king of Syria, sending a letter to the king of Israel. There's intervention. It's in the context, secondly, of isolation. The prophet sends a message but does not dignify his appearing by his own appearance. Thirdly, it's without compensation. As far as we know, he kept all the money except to buy a little bit of dirt, which we'll notice next time. But he keeps the money. Can't pay for what he's about to receive. Fourthly, it was in view of these servants' direction. Naaman drew the conclusion that he did because of the little people who spoke to him. Fifthly, it was by way of humiliation. Go and wash in the waters of Jordan. This is the last straw. You can almost hear Naaman saying that. This is the last straw. Prophet won't come out to talk to me, and now he's telling me to bathe in this relatively dirty water when I have very good streams and rivers at home. Naaman would choose his own river, his own way, his own method of deliverance. Roger Ellsworth quotes Alexander McLaren and says, Alexander McLaren splendidly observes that, that Naaman wanted to be treated like a great man who happened to be a leper, but Elisha's cure treated him as a leper who happened to be a great man. See the difference? He wanted to be treated as a great man who had a disease. Whereas Elisha believed in treating him as someone with a disease who happened to be a great man. The same writer says, Naaman cuts quite a figure in these verses. He is helpless in the dreaded grip of leprosy and a cure is made available, but his pride will not allow him to accept the cure. And he goes away in a rage. He's angry. How many people <clears throat> treat the gospel and you're speaking to them in exactly the same way. I think I've shared this with you before, but on one occasion <clears throat> I was preaching at a, at a funeral, very small group of people in attendance, an elderly man that had been a friend of our family for years. He was almost like an uncle. And three people came in in the back. And I don't think I was 10 minutes into an explanation of the gospel, and I heard this voice, ah, shut up. 
And then a little bit later, how much longer is he going to be? You know, it reminds me of Naaman, who just walks out in a rage because of the way he's treated and because of the message that he is given. So his salvation was through intervention in the context of isolation without compensation in view of these servants' direction by way of humiliation and sixthly, in view of regulation, in view of law. Salvation is not a matter of of, uh, emotion or suggestion, but it's a matter of truth having to do with law. God must be appeased, and he is in the gospel. And his wrath is removed by way of law. And so we here see that this, here was this sevenfold act. In Leviticus chapter 14, the, the rule of law was that for seven days, so you have the number seven, the individual is to remain outside the camp. In both cases, obedience, someone's obedience is necessary. necessary. And an obedience that is symbolized by perfection. This bears the stamp of the work of God. And so Naaman's salvation, seventhly, is by way of reception. Receiving the truth and being received subsequently by the prophet. With regard to Naaman, Naaman, he wanted something. He was desperate for it. Desperate to be healed, finally taking the advantage of some of the Lord's little people. He went, he washed, he was made whole, and he welcomed or confessed the truth in verse 15. Matthew Henry says, or wrote, so common it is common It is for God and man to differ in their judgments. And he goes on to say, this man gets by yielding to the will of God, by attending to his institution. And finally, notice notice, Naaman's statement in verse 15. And he returned to the man of God. He and all his company came and stood before him and he said, what? Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth 
but in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a present of thy servant. I will look at the latter part of the verse next time, but notice here is Naaman's conviction, now I know. Previously, this is what I think, and this is what I'm willing to do, but now I know. Secondly, his confession. And his confession was to Elisha, the very man that he had ignored before and disobeyed. Here is his correction, a correction of his perspective and a correction of of what he had claimed to believe. And ultimately his consecration, and we'll see more of that next time. It reminds me of... 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, where Paul says of the Thessalonian Christians that everybody knew what had transpired because of their reputation, that they had turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. Here is Naaman, an important man in Syria who has come to faith pretty much in the same way that everybody comes to faith. Somebody told him where to go. He went and objected to what he was told until he was told by someone else something that was helpful, and he went and he did what he was asked to do, and he becomes a new person, and he confesses this before the very man that he had been angry with, who was trying to tell him the truth through a messenger. We discover, I think, in this text a number of things. God's sovereignty, for one, over international affairs as well as individual circumstances. We discover God's ability to save the sovereignty of of his grace. Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, you know, there were a lot of widows in Israel and there were a lot of lepers in Israel. But the prophet Elijah only went to the widow in Zarephath and Elisha only went to Naaman the Syrian. The sovereignty of God's grace, God's mercy. I think we also discover from the text that we don't enter the kingdom in mass, but as individuals. We don't enter because of our heritage or because of our wealth or because of our connections or anything else, but rather as individuals, because of God's grace, convicting us of the leprosy of our sin 
and the need for a savior. We also learn that the gospel similarly humbles our pride. What's our biggest problem? Isn't it not pride? Certainly up there at the top of the list. Aren't the rivers of Damascus so inviting? Other means, other ways, easier, more pleasant. And yet God's way of sending us to the Jordan, metaphorically speaking, humbles or is intended to humble our pride. So here is a man who has everything, but also this great disease. Here is a man who needs to be healed and rejects the means of his salvation because it all seems so preposterous, so absurd, if not stupid. I could stay at home and believe the religion and the cultural underpinnings of my day, and I can bathe in those cool, pristine waters of Syria. Nothing was more preposterous to him than to do what Elisha recommended that he do. Nothing is more preposterous except perhaps trusting in a man who was crucified on a cross. Is there anything more preposterous, anything more absurd? Absurd. The rivers of Damascus are far more appealing, so much easier. And just as Naaman, we're brought low and our pride is crushed. And we realize that there is no salvation in Syria. Our salvation is to be found in a man preposterously crucified upon a cross. And we believe. And we believe because somebody told us what the gospel was. We believe because we've been moved to trust in this man who died upon the cross. And we believe. And our perspective has changed. And we've come to confess this man who lived and who died for us. And like Naaman, we now know that there is a God and that God has saved us through the merits of his son. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we, we do thank you for this gospel lesson from perhaps an unlikely place, Old Testament book having to do with a prophet. 
And yet here is valuable information, lesson by way of illustration from the life of a Syrian. May we go on our way this afternoon rejoicing and thanking you for the gospel and for what we have through Christ and how readily we are to continue confessing our faith in Christ, knowing that there is no other God but you. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.